0: Hello, and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. I'm very privileged and excited to have join me on the podcast today the Honourable Paul Heath QC, who currently practices as an arbitrator and mediator from Bankside Chambers both in Auckland and Singapore. His primary issue of interest is insolvency law, particularly cross border insolvency. That interest has led to his association with South Square London, which is the leading set of insolvency barristers in London City. Paul is an associate of those chambers and an active member of its arbitration and mediation unit. Those roles dovetail into his present position as co-chair of InSol International ADR co Aquarium, which is endeavouring to promote the use of arbitration and mediation in cross-border insolvency disputes in a manner that's designed to complement the, uh, the public role of courts in such cases. Paul graduated with his law degree from the University of Auckland in 1978, and he practised in a firm of barristers and solicitors in Hamilton. from the the mid-1981 until 1998, when he went to the Independent Bar and contemporaneously at that same time was appointed a Queen's Counsel. In the period between 1997 and 2002, Paul was first a consultant and then later a commissioner of the New Zealand Law Commission, leading projects on electronic commerce, cross-border insolvency, arbitration and more generally an insolvency law review. He was appointed a judge of the High Court of New Zealand in 2002 and he retired in 2018 after serving 16 years on the High Court bench. Between 2003 and 2017, Paul sat regularly as a member of the Criminal and Civil Appeal Divisions of the New Zealand Court of Appeal. During his time in practice, Paul appeared on three occasions in the Privy Council and was New Zealand's delegate to the Working Group Number 5 of the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law when dealing with cross-border insolvency issues. Since his retirement from the bench, he's undertaken assignments for the World Bank, Insol International and the Asian Development Bank, primarily in the area of judicial capacity building. Presently, Paul holds a part-time judicial office as the Chief Justice of the Pitkin Islands and a Judge of the Court of Appeal of Kiribati. Paul is the co-consulting editor of Heath and Whale on Insolvency, a leading New Zealand text on insolvency law. Paul's international reputation in insolvency law was recognised in 2000 when he became an international fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy. Paul, good afternoon and welcome to the podcast.
1: Good afternoon, Chris. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. um, Not that the listeners can see, but I am sitting here with my own copy, which I I've had for many years Heath and Well on Insolvency Law in New Zealand, and it's uh, it's actually one of one of the better insolvency texts um, uh, within the Commonwealth. Um, uh, occasionally, I've had to go and and look at the the various insolvency texts for Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Um, uh, your book is is immensely uh, easy to read and follow, um, and get straight to the point, which which from a practitioner's point of view. Is a great asset. It's a, it's a great read. Well, thank you very much. The publisher will be delighted <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> yeah. oh, I, should, I should possibly uh, mention it through to them. But, of course, your other co-editor uh, on that is Michael Whale, and he's always been quite a, a leading insolvency practitioner here in New Zealand. Um, look, I thought I might start off with, um, with a bit of a, a, a quote. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a quote of Nicholas Murray Butler, who in, uh, 19, in 1911... Uh, was president of Columbia University, and he gave a speech called Politics and Economics at the 143rd annual banquet of the Chamber of Commerce in the state of New York uh, that year, being 1911. Uh, But what he said is he said this, uh, and this this will be known to some people, he said, the limited liability corporation is the greatest single discovery of modern times. Um, And I I think that's a a great quote because um, companies... Affect uh, just about every single person in uh, in Australasia in one way or another, um, either we work for them, they provide us with services uh, etc and it 's really hard to imagine how uh, the modern world would have, would have existed. Um, without having the limited liability company as a vehicle to enable investment and um, uh, and reward to be distributed. Um, anyway, before we as we as we carry on now, we, we're really talking now on the topic of insolvency. Um, now, insolvency has two parts: is the corporate part and the personal um, part, which is known as bankruptcy. Uh, we're going to focus on on corporate insolvency. Uh, rather than 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 bankruptcy, but before we get into that, I did want to ask you a, a, a question at a, at a sort of a high level um, in New Zealand bankruptcies are administered by the official SINE. it's a it's part of um, uh, part of the state uh, whereas in australia there is a uh, you, there are private uh, bankruptcy practitioners who will administer private bankruptcy. Um, do you have any views on, you know, with the pros and cons of of having private or bankruptcies administered by uh, insolvency practitioners rather than than an entity like the official SINE? I,
1: I don't think there's any real um, objection in principle to that happening. Um, it tends to be that bankruptcies in general have less uh, assets uh, in terms of, of being able to distribute and necessarily to pay costs. So, um, the, the private practitioners, I'm not sure exactly how much they would actually be prepared to be involved in this sort of work. The official assignee, on the other hand, fulfills the, pub, the public service of ensuring that the estate is, is resolved um, efficiently and effectively for the benefit of creditors. Uh, and in New Zealand, it seems to have worked quite well. When I was at the Law Commission, we did raise that as a consideration for uh, the insolvency law reform, but uh, it didn't get any traction with the officials.
0: No. Well, um, I do know that uh, in Australia, the, um, the use of private um, ugh, bankruptcy insolvency practitioners as such, um, you are correct, absolutely, that that more often than not, in fact, a very large percentage of, of bankruptcies there just isn't um enough money left in the the bankruptcy estate to 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 make you know paying someone privately to to go through that but there are sometimes exceptions to to that all right well look um what i wanted to ask you is is why insolvency law um i mean you were at auckland university in the late 70s when did the interest in 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 insolvency you know the spark when did when did the spark ignite well
1: like most things i fell into it um it was uh, when I was at university, um, I came from a family um, where we'd had nobody go to university, uh, let alone do law. Uh, and so uh, it was, you know, a little bit of a, a, a trial for my parents to help me get through university. So I took a bursary with the government and the department I happened to get into was the commercial affairs division of the Department of Justice, which then ran the official assignee's office. So for 3 years during my um, period at university I actually worked during holidays with the official ASNE um did the terrible things like going out and having to close up a fish and chip shop uh, after it'd been uh, sort of left empty for a few days uh work out who was going to take what furniture and one of the things that did for me as a lawyer was it taught me very quickly how how much uh, practitioners were reliant on speedy advice from lawyers of a practical nature when they when they wanted to do that um, so after my time at the university uh, sorry at uh, at commercial affairs um, I was there as a as an in-house lawyer for probably two or three years started appearing in court uh, at that time uh, and then uh, looked to go to the private sector and ended up in hamilton um, and a couple of years doing general practice, then uh, ended up uh, getting back into the insolvency area, primarily through the official assignee in Hamilton and other insolvency practitioners down there.
0: Now you would have been uh, operating under the the 1955 Act. Um, uh, what what did you see as being um, with the, the the 1993 Act? Um, what did you see as the improvement in the insolvency aspects? Because I think this is part um, 16 of the I think the Act intention yeah. was, and it, and it did work, was to be more streamlined. Um, there were
1: a lot of occasions in the 1955 Act where consent was required from the court to do a number of relatively menial things. Um, so, you know, it caused difficulties and cost in terms of de- dealing with those matters as they arose. Um, the, I think the Companies Act did a couple of key things with insolvency. One was to remove those sorts of impediments. So you no longer had creditors' um, voluntary liquidations, members' voluntary liquidations in court. You just now had one liquidation with everything subject to the supervision of the court. Second thing was to at least in part codify directors' duties. Uh, and that was more for accessibility so that people could read the statute and have some idea of what their obligations were as directors. Now, that's not an entire code, but it does cover the the essence of what's required, uh, and I think most directors who read through that carefully will have a pretty good idea of, of what their obligations are and what they need to do to fulfill them.
0: Yes, well um new zealand has a lot of companies um just to give you some statistics uh in 2002 there were um 286 286,425 companies um then when uh 7 years later just um just after the the, GFC, the number of companies in new zealand had grown like in, pretty much doubled to 526,627. Um, and then last year, uh, we're now up to 698,163, so which is under 700,000 companies that are, that are still registered um, uh, on. So, so New Zealanders love companies, and we've got lots of them. Uh, so your you point about directors' duties is really well made. Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, anecdotally, I suspect there are a lot of directors out there who who, who haven't read their duties um, and, and, and possibly don't really understand them particularly well. And I, I guess we see that particularly when it comes to failures, corporate failures. And of course, uh, and I, I won't ask you to to, to comment. Um, uh, specifically on it, but uh, you you were the judge sitting in one of the one of the more spectacular corporate um, failures, which was the um, South Canterbury Finance um, uh, prosecution of uh, of the, the directors of that case, and and that went on for quite a number of weeks. I think was that a six week trial? Was five it? months. Five months it was five months. Off and on
1: for five months. Yeah. Uh, there were seventy two sitting days. I remember it's ingrained in my brain. <laughs>
0: Well, <laughs> well, that's truly a marathon. Yep. Uh, would, 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 that must have been the longest case that you ever. It was the longest yep. case yep. I
1: did. Um, the only one that came close was actually the Nathan's Finance one in in Auckland, which was also a failed uh, finance company.
0: Yep. Now, look, I've I've never appeared um, in the in the High Court sitting, in... it was it was in Tamaru, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I'd imagine that. Um, uh, Timaru, it's 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 not a for, for some listeners it's not a huge town. I think it's only got a population of about six thousand people. Might be a bit more. Maybe a bit more. Yeah. yeah, a bit more. But it's it's not a large town. Um, and of course, uh, South Canterbury Finance. Um, that was uh, uh, Mr Hubbard was yeah he. Uh, I mean he was a local hero. Yes. Um, so so that must that, that, that would have attracted a, a lot of interest with with, with local people there.
1: It did, mm-hmm. and uh, interestingly, there was a bit of a split among local people as to those who supported him, mm-hmm. those who didn't, particularly when it got to the stage of a trial. Yeah. Uh, he'd passed away before the trial started, so the uh, two directors uh, remained on trial, the chief executive officer. Mm-hmm. So uh, Mr Hubbard was there in the background, yes. uh, lurking in the shadows, so to speak, but um, the the real... Um, Inquiries were over the three defendants and their role in the company.
0: Yes, that's right. You've reminded me. I think um, Mr. Hubbard and, and his wife had a had a car accident in the nineteen sixty eight Volkswagen Beetle. I think it might have might have been. It was a, and it turned out to be a fatal accident. You never um, accuse Mr. Hubbard of having the trappings as well. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, he he had this beaten up car, and there was you know stories about him working at the kitchen table, and there was evidence in the form of handwritten cash books. Uh, it was It was not your standard uh fare of corporate um, failure cases
0: no, no, and and of course, um what made it um, uh, particularly i guess uh newsworthy uh, or added to the the dynamic of it all was that um, shortly before the failure, uh, the treasury had agreed to include them in the uh, retail deposit guarantee scheme. Uh, and I think the payout on that was something like $1.6 billion, um, uh, which came out of that. It was, uh, yes, quite a quite a large payment, <laughs> a lot of money involved. Okay, so look, going back to your, uh, your career, you had your time uh, with uh, what was the insolvency service and then you joined a, a firm in Hamilton, I understand. Yeah,
1: Stace yes. Hammond-Grayson.
0: Partners. Okay, and, and you, you would have been part of their litigation team, presumably. That's you know? right. Yeah.
1: Um, the other litigator or the senior litigator with me was John Fair who subsequently became a high court judge as
0: well. He, he did, he did. He, he started started off as a, as a master yeah. and then um, I think became an associate judge when they changed the name uh, and then ultimately a justice and I think I had the privilege of, of Appearing in one of his last trials, uh, <laughs> which I think he was glad to see the see, see the end of, and 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 again that had, had elements of uh, corporate failure <laughs> through it as well, uh, and insolvency, but but in the interesting area of um, of property development, and and of course, um, you've seen a couple of property cycles, you know, both as a as a practitioner and as a, as a judge, and those cycles tend to follow the same trajectory. Um, uh, property values go up. Uh, developers get very busy um, then um, property prices don't carry on going up, level out or go down and then uh, developers find themselves in 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 an awkward situation and of course um, uh, the GFC uh, 2008-2009 Probably accounts for why uh, that became part of the high watermark for for liquidations. So again, to, to to pile on some statistics for the listeners, um, in 2002 there was uh, 1,912 liquidations that that, that year, and uh, two, 2009, uh, just right at the towards the end of the GFC, uh, the number had um, almost um, doubled to 3,434 of which the official assignee uh, undertook, 377, and, and that seems consistent. They do roughly about 10 to 15% of liquidations. And then last year, because uh, things have been great for the New Zealand economy, uh, it, it's gone way down to 13, uh, 1,379 liquidations. Which makes me wonder uh, how the insolvency practitioners are all surviving with such uh, little uh, liquidations. And of course, there's got to be a silver lining on on every dark cloud. And I, I think uh, a lot of insolvency practitioners are looking at the property market because New Zealanders love property, love companies, love property. That um, perhaps the uh, the, the hay to, you know, the, the, the bright sunny days are yet to come for them again. I don't know whether we'll get up to nearly three and a half thousand liquidations and and. And and I hope that we don't, because uh liquidations, um, I mean not all of them are insolvent, you have solvent liquidations, but um they do signal that someone's lost money. Um so uh you you then with the with the, the firm you're in uh Hamilton, stay Summon, you moved um and became a, a law commissioner and you, you looked at cross border insolvency. Um, how was that process? What, what, what did you discover as, as a commissioner diving into uh, the current state of our laws when it came to cross-border insolvency and, and maybe where the future should go? I'd
1: already had some exposure to it through Insol International, so the IBA, um, where I'd been involved in some peripheral work uh, that they were doing at the time. So when I became a commissioner, that was one of the things uh, that the commission decided they wanted me to do. Well, More accurately, when I became a consultant, I was initially involved in that sphere. And the work was designed really to say, look, we're now in an era of globalism. The reality is you can't stop money from being transferred in nanoseconds across the world. So you need a system that enables you to uh, get assets which are in different countries and to pay creditors that are in different countries. And how do you do that uh, when the companies might all piecemeal be liquidated uh, in different uh, jurisdictions? So the whole object of the cross-border solvency project uh, was to find a mechanism where we could not lose anything. And the two key things we were looking at there was whether our existing law was good yeah. And secondly, questions of sovereignty, that we didn't lose things there. Uh, but balanced against that, we had the globalization reality. Uh, we did work on the fiscal side of it, which was interesting because what we discovered was that people were investing money quite considerably into New Zealand from overseas. The, the, the key driver, for the cost of that money, was looking at the insolvency system if things go badly, how quickly are we going to be able to recover our money? So that was actually a a pretty important driver for offshore investors. And the third part of it was to look at the fairness and efficiency of the whole process. Um, Going back to globalization, one of the key things was to try to come up with a solution that was consistent with used by major trading partners so that as far as they were concerned you know we had uh, something similar that they were familiar with and that we too were familiar with if um if problems emerged the other way around
0: look, absolutely and and i, th- I think the, the the i understand the point that you're making to be that um new zealand is an economy um we, we need capital Okay. There's, um, overseas capital is a, it plays an important part uh, and part of being um, a, a, corp, a, a global citizen as a, as a state, we've got to make sure that our laws are, um, are in a way that, uh, that overseas corporations and investors can feel confident that um, they can make investments in New Zealand uh, and that we have a, a set of laws that will um, uh, regulate behaviour. Um so let, let's jump now dive now into you know the concept of um of uh, corporate failure and, and we'll stay away from the topic of solv- uh, of solvent uh, liquidations because because that's something that uh you know where you've got a company that uh it needs to be brought to an end um and it may be solvent so you can go through a solvent liquidation and and most liquidations are are either driven um, uh, or the ones that appear before the courts are, are, are insolvent liquidation. So, um, this is really the, I guess the um, the dying process of a company, if that's a, a metaphor or analogy to use. Um, how does it operate? How 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 does insolvency um, operate into in New Zealand? Um, how do, how does a company go from being um, uh, trading to to being placed into liquidation?
1: Okay, well obviously the first thing is the directors um, are making decisions about the way the company operates. Sometimes insolvency can be caused through bad decision making. Sometimes it can be caused through fraud, although probably not as often as, as people think. Sometimes it can be caused through extraneous factors and the pandemic's a very good example of that. There were a lot of businesses with good fundamentals that simply weren't able to continue because uh, they'd lost all their market. And while the wage subsidy helped carry on in the meantime, uh, it was a panacea rather than a, uh, an overall solution. So you you get to the point, once the directors realise it's insolvent, or near insolvency, they then have to make some decisions. Um, do we try to put uh, do we try to put arrangements into place uh, for the benefit of creditors disclose everything and try and work our way through to, to salvage the business that can be done on an informal basis if you get everybody together and they agree unanimously or it can be done through the voluntary administration regime or potentially through a compromise under the Companies Act? The voluntary administration regime is a little like the intensive care unit of the, uh, of the, of the corporate hospital, and the liquidation is like the all. So you've, you've, got your, um, you've got your surgeons working away on the, um, on the patient as far as uh, the corporate entity is concerned, and their key drivers are to say, well, uh, is this company capable of being sold as a going concern? In other words, can it make money? Or can we at least hive off part of the business to sell, uh, and then uh, basically liquidate the balance of the assets?
0: Can we talk about the the voluntary administration? Um, so this was a a, a, a a new and an alternative option to uh, for directors from going. Look, uh, we're either solvent, we're now insolvent. We, we, we don't have confidence that we can trade our way out of this uh, or raise capital, whatever the, the decision is. This option of uh, voluntary administration, um, I, I think that came into as an option into our, our law about 10 years ago. if is, is, I got that right? might
1: be a little longer than no, that but now, what? but it was uh, 2007. 2007. Mind, but may, maybe a little later than
0: that. Yeah, okay. But my... Um, my perception or understanding is, is that it hasn't been um, a sort of a popular option. Like there, there, there aren't lots of um, voluntary administrations. Um, it seems the, the, the company either succeeds or it, goes, it fails and goes into liquidation. Um, is, is that your perception?
1: Voluntary administrations generally will only work with uh, reasonably big companies because reasonably big companies are the only ones that can bear the cost of doing it. And about 95% of New Zealand companies are small to medium businesses that couldn't afford that. One of the points we made in one of the law commission reports I was involved in was um, that uh, the the targeting needed to be at those bigger companies to try to um, salvage them where possible because they, in in a broader sense, have a bigger impact on the economy than do small ones. If a lot of small companies go bust, that can have an effect. But if a big company goes bust, that can have an effect also. So the it picked up on what the English call the rescue culture, and it was really designed, as I say, to try and salvage people uh, or businesses. It, it, it's it got a uh, an underlying philosophy that... You're dealing with people who are trying to manage the business in a, in a sensible way and are honest in the way they're doing it because they're the ones who are having to put their hands uh, forward and say we need an insolvency administrator, albeit on a number of occasions with a little bit of friendly pressure from a, a bank that, um, that can see there's a problem. As to the number of voluntary administrations, what often happens? is that you might have uh, an arrangement which looks like a voluntary administration where a director goes to the bank and says, look, we've got this problem, we need to try and work it out. Now, the banks who generally have the general security agreement will um, have an ability to execute that anyway. Um, so they're always going to have a veto in the way. But on occasion, you can just get a voluntary workout without anybody actually knowing. And I suspect there are probably a number of companies around New Zealand, probably well-known, who are actually being managed in that way under the radar. Um, and they're, they're, they're doing okay because um, they're having discipline brought upon them through this sort of
0: mechanism. So I, 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 I Often by their the, the, the main financier.
1: Yeah, that they play a big role. And you also have the uh, experienced insolvency administrators who are knowledgeable about uh, the way in which the company could be operated or sold in order to um, meet its obligations. And I think that assistance to the directors can be helpful if the directors are minded to listen. Yes, sometimes they are, sometimes they are.
0: And of course, I, th- I think the logical, the, the rationale behind it is that you have a company, which is, um, but for perhaps just a moment in time, um, a, a, a sound commercial enterprise, um, and it just needs time to, to to make some changes or get through a period, uh, and. and the benefit it is that it stops, say, one creditor or a few creditors coming in and saying, "Well, we we're not prepared to wait. Um, we just we want to see the the company tipped, and so that we can recover our losses now, um, uh, rather than see this out." So that does give a period of time. As you as I love your metaphor of of them being in the ER room. And seeing whether or not this patient will be sent off to recovery or, or the morgue. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. basically it. it. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is basically it. Now, of course, insolvencies are sort of a, it's a, it's a combination process. Is it? there's a, there's a lot involved in it, um, and and it starts if we if we take you know your classic creditor insolvency, um, which I think most insolvencies are, um, where a creditor will uh, issue a, a statutory demand um, on a company this is a this is a unique mechanism because um, there isn't a personal really equivalent of it um, and uh, of course a, a statutory demand um, that that triggers a requirement on the company to pay the debt or to or to dispute it um and if they're going to dispute it, they don't have a lot of time. They've got a, they've only got ten working days in which to file an application in the High Court to get the demand set aside. Um, it, it does put a, a, a lot of pressure on. Um, uh, what's your thoughts on the statutory demand process? It works well as long as it's not abused. And there,
1: um, I'm not sure if it's still in the where's um, ethical as it should know, but um, there used to be, some time ago, under the 55 Act, um, what was called the 218 notice, which was basically the same. And there was actually a, a rule passed to say that it was a, it was something uh, offended against lawyers' ethics if they were party to issuing a, statu- a 218 notice mm-hmm. statutory demand in circumstances where they knew the debt was disputed. Mm-hmm. So the mechanism is only there to be used if you've got an undisputed debt, someone won't pay. And then uh, you have the presumption of insolvency that follows from non-compliance. So I don't have a problem uh, with the the approach or the philosophy. It's the the use of mechanism uh, in a manner it's not designed to do, particularly where it's putting undue pressure because of the time limits. On someone to basically try and extract a payment that may otherwise be disputed, so that that's where I have uh, concerns about the way in which the process works.
0: Yeah, look, you're absolutely right, and and that those time constraints. Um, I always hate the months of December <laughs> for statutory demands. And it, it, look, I think I have had years where, where where this hasn't happened, but there's certainly been a lot of years where I'll have a client or a solicitor get in touch with me on the 22nd of December <laughs> and say, oh, I've just had a statutory demand served and it's disputed. <laughs> and then you, you look at it and go, well, what's the age of this debt? And the, 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 debt, the debt's actually quite old, and you can't help but wonder. <laughs> Or not? Someone's sat there and thought, i have got to wait close to Christmas." When lawyers, uh, particularly here in Australasia, we all like to, if we can, take take a break over the Christmas and New Year's period. But you're right; it's uh, it can be abused from a timing point of view. Um, look, I mean, I'll share with listeners uh, what's been a, a standard part of my practice, and uh, it, it it echoes, Paul, uh, pretty much what you what you've said to the to a tea, Is um. When I have clients who say, oh, we're going to issue a statutory, we want a statutory demand issued, and, and often I have a solicitor and say, oh, we, we're going to issue the statutory demand. And I'll say, well, look, why don't we just wait for a moment, okay, and how about we have a letter sent um, that sets out uh, the creditor's position and why they believe that the, that the debt can't be disputed and, and make it very clear that um, uh, unless um, the debt is paid, or you provide uh, reasons, satisfactory reasons, why it's disputed by a particular date. Statutory de- uh, demand will be served, and, and the reason why I think that's a really good practice is because uh, often, uh, look, some clients, solicitors, don't give you the full picture, <laughs> tell, you, tell you everything, and of course, the issuing of the statutory demand does it, it, it has consequences. It triggers this response where the the, the recipient company will go off and file an application to set it aside. And and in their application, they'll set out the reasons why it's disputed. And you you don't want to hear that for the first time when you're reading the application. And and if you do hear it for the first time, at least you've got that letter to say, but we invited you to set out why it was in dispute so you can have a, a more orderly retreat. Without having um, having problems, but I, I don't think that practice is often followed, or not, in my experience, and and hence you get all these applications to set aside stat demands. Yeah,
1: I yeah. mean, I, I I don't have enough um, familiarity with what's going on at the moment to comment, but certainly that was a practice I always used to follow when uh, when I was involved in this uh, back in the dark ages. But you, you have. Um, you have the advantage with the letter. It does two things. The first is it puts um, the other party on notice that, hey, we've got a real problem. We can't raise a genuine dispute. The second is you're protecting yourself for costs if they don't reply and uh, you file the notice and then find out that a dispute. The judge is likely to be much more sympathetic to you if you've done that in terms of whether costs should be awarded against the...
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the statutory demand uh, process, uh, if the demand's complied with and paid, all good. But if it's not, uh, then the the 15 working days here under our New Zealand system goes by and it creates the concept of of an act of insolvency. And, uh, of course, that's used. um, uh, Why is it, uh, Paul, that um, creditors might want to use a statutory demand um, uh, to create an act of insolvency, what's the purpose of that? Oh, the purpose is very simple.
1: It's that um, if
0: you can't,
1: when you use a statutory demand, if it's not met, you have a presumption of insolvency. It's a rebuttable presumption. Yeah. So the, the debtor can come along and say, well, actually, I'm not insolvent. But it gives you something to start on with the petition. Otherwise, you have to be in a position as a creditor to prove it is insolvent and normally you don't have enough information to look at that on a rounded basis in relation to all creditors and all assets of the company
0: look look you're absolutely right um, so it creates that uh, rebuttable presumption um, of insolvency uh, because of course, Um, uh, here in New Zealand it's the same in Australia too, to start um, the uh, the more formal court process uh, proceedings have to be issued and in the the proceedings uh, the claim is that the the defendant company is insolvent and the statutory demand can be referred to as evidence of that insolvency which of course the company can lead evidence to rebut that um, if they need to. Um, so the proceedings are filed uh, and then there's another um, interesting um, timing issue and that is around the issue of advertising the application because the application uh, for it to, to be granted at some point has to be uh, advertised. Uh, and then we've got this problem that uh, once, it's, uh, once the application's filed, there's nothing really stopping a creditor from then advertising unless, of course, the company gets uh, an injunction to prevent advertising. Um, but there isn't a lot of time there. Um, is, is that an area, do, do you recall, whether the the, the, laws, uh, the legal law commission looked at that, that I issue? I don't think it was. I think uh-huh.
1: the view it um, took was pretty pragmatic. that The debtor company on receipt of the statutory demand um, had the opportunity to dispute. If they didn't take that opportunity to dispute, then there was a presumption of insolvency. Before you get to a hearing of a creditor's application, you need to advertise so that you flush out any other creditors who may be in a similar position so that they also know what the position is dealing with this company. Also, if you get paid, they've got the ability to substitute uh, as the petitioning creditor. So there are um, advantages there. Um, The the debtor company really has to persuade the court that there is some reason why it didn't dispute uh, and take the uh, ability to set aside the uh, statutory demand. or They can persuade the court, well, uh, this shouldn't be advertised. So um, personally, I don't have any... That is as a mechanism uh, for dealing with, up to the point of considering the application.
0: Yes. Well, look. I mean, advertising a, a, an application to liquidate a company can have quite devastating effects on the on the company, um, particularly uh, in terms of its uh, deemed or perceived creditworthiness. Suddenly, its its creditors uh, get nervous. <laughs> <laughs> That's a way way of, pu- way of putting it. Now, um, of course, uh, the debtor company can uh, oppose the application, and uh, it's got to persuade the court that it is it's solvent uh, and can pay its debts as they they fall due. Um, can we just talk about directors' duties? Because directors' duties under the Companies Act are are, are almost exclusively to to their shareholders. Um, they, they don't have any duties to their creditors while they're solvent, okay? and, and and this is a, this is an area which um, because the the Companies Act isn't a complete code, um, uh, this is an area where is it, let's just say possibly a lack of understanding on the part of directors and and possibly the creditors etc. as to at the point at which suddenly the directors have to be thinking about the creditors. Um, what can you tell us about that, that concept?
1: Generally, it's known as being in the twilight zone. So don't really, um, you, you, you should be on notice, <clears throat> excuse me, that there is a problem, um, but you might not necessarily know what to do about it at that point. And uh, you're not going to be liable immediately. Um, you're going to be able to be, you're going to be given a fair chance to address problem arises. Uh, And the balance that has to be struck is between continuing almost blindly thinking um, I can get my way through this and then causing a lot of loss to creditors on the one hand and the need to encourage entrepreneurship, the other, to grow the economy. Very interesting discussion I had going back about 20 years now with a an American bankruptcy scholar, Jay Westbrook, and we were talking about uh, companies, and, and I use the expression: you know, "When it uh, goes into liquidation, it becomes the shell." We often do, and he looked at me and said, "You mean the entrepreneur?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which is the difference yeah. between the yeah. way Americans look at bankruptcy and the way uh, countries like Australia, New Zealand, and England? Yes, look at it. it's a totally different philosophy. They put the um Emphasis on encouraging entrepreneurship, yes, and we tend to put a bit more emphasis on protecting predators who might not be in a position to protect themselves, so that 's where the balance gets struck. The other problem, and uh obviously main seals supreme court at the moment, so i you know, won't talk about that, but um Supreme Court's already given a decision in a case called Debut Homes, which which was essentially a, you know, one-person company. Um, Zeal is, you know, a, a company that had a big directors and, uh, you know, was was operating in a far different atmosphere. The the real challenge for the Supreme Court is to find its way through the director visions in a way that makes them work equally well uh, for those two types of companies. Um, because if you look at uh, the main zeal type situation, business judgment rule becomes quite important. You know, is, is the board making a decision that a reasonable would make? And uh, I know my approach was always, if someone was making a decision that was outside the bounds of what one should reasonably do in that financial position, then they were far more at risk of uh, liability, personal liability, than they were otherwise. Uh, In the case of a one-person company, it's rather different. Generally speaking, the bank's got all this security and this personal guarantees. So um, there is a real need, and this comes back to your point about. Uh, Right at the start, when we're talking about the number of companies, probably about 95% of them, thereabouts, are these one-person companies, small companies. And uh, you know, there is is an issue of well, given that personal guarantees are almost inevitable, you know, is there really a point in the bail being used? Um, The the quote that you gave at the start was interesting as to the timing. Because when uh, the limited liability company was first invented, the whole purpose was to enable a group of entrepreneurs to put money into something um, with a view to then having a limited liability if, in fact, things went wrong. They were limited only to the amount that they had promised to put in. Um, And there are big differences uh, as to how you treat each of those categories of company.
0: And look, New Zealand uh, needs entrepreneurs and uh, the nature of being an entrepreneur is you're taking risk, um, uh, hopefully for a reward. Um, I mean, for some uh, entrepreneurs, uh, bankruptcy or a corporate failure is is just a rite of passage. You've got to see where the edge is and, and then learn from that. Uh, to go on and do great things. And there are examples of that. But then, then there's also examples of, uh, you know, you could say these repeat recidivist offenders <laughs> as, as such. Um, look, once the um, the courts uh, heard the application, um, if it's granted, a, a liquidator is appointed. Now, who chooses the liquidator in New Zealand?
1: The creditor can uh, nominate a liquidator um, for the court to consider um generally that will be an experienced insolvency practitioner um the courts will have a general knowledge of main people involved in the market uh and usually be prepared to act on that i think if someone new is coming in they probably need some cv information mm-hmm. to understand that here is a responsible person whom they can point uh so that uh funds that are received uh, remain intact um, or in the absence of anybody being prepared to act as liquidator, then the official assignee is appointed as a default.
0: Yes. Um, and another way in which a company can go into liquidation is where the, the shareholders pass a resolution to to appoint a, a liquidator and, and they, they can do that up until um uh there's a point where they can't um and that's when a creditor has filed an application and, and time so a certain amount of time's gone by um when the shareholders appoint a liquidator isn't there a bit of a risk for for the for the the creditors to 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 be somewhat cynical that the 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 company's appointed its own liquidator and that that liquidator may be not necessarily acting in the creditor's interest but May have been paid a sum of money just to get through the process?
1: I think it's fair to say that there is, um, there can be a, a thinking process of that nature. Um, you know, Some some liquidators are friendly uh, to the uh, people who are, um, and that's what concerns the creditors. And that's why that provision looked into the Company Act to Action. Try and stop people acting in that way so that once the creditor had actually taken steps, uh, there was a bit more control over the situation. Until then, um, the shareholder appointed data was there uh, for a good time. But again, um, I think it comes down to reputation and ability. Um, If creditors see someone, who has got respect in the community, commercial community and uh, with skills as an insolvency practitioner they're more likely to just let let it go because the company is in liquidation if not they're more likely to proceed to, to themselves in a position where a replacement of data
0: we talk about, um, because this segues in nicely into the the topic of the regulation of insolvency practitioners because this is a a relatively new development in New Zealand. Um, uh, Up until uh, the last few years, um, it it was, I think one person once said it's sort of a bit of like the Wild West out there. Um, Anyone could call themselves an insolvency practitioner and uh, be appointed as a liquid consent to being appointed as a liquidator and then run it they didn 't necessarily need to have any specific qualifications I mean they could even have um, quite serious uh, dishonesty convictions um, et cetera. so whereas now there is regulation what's what was the thinking around regulation well regulation's been on the table for
1: a long time one of the things that the we, we were we were pushing some sort of uh, regulation and the reason at that time um, is you, people who are insolvency practitioners are stewards of other people's money and you've got to have a sufficient degree of trust that they will look after that money and not misapply it to people who aren't entitled to it. For example, by paying off shareholders who otherwise would be at the bottom of the payment um, and... Therefore, we took. You, you need some sort of mechanism. Also, trans Tasman um, insolvencies. The Australians insist there being uh, a um, regulated insolvency practitioner have done for many years. So that if you had a New Zealand company, a cross-border situation going into Australia, it was it was always going to be difficult to get an Australian recognised. Someone who wasn't uh, inter- sorry wasn't subject to those sorts of um, control. Um, so those those are the main reasons. I think loosely say, and it is a great exaggeration, but makes the point that you know if you weren't mentally unstable and uh, over the age of eighteen, you, you could be a liquidator. Um, I think there were some provisions relating to criminal. Instances of dishonesty, but people didn't necessarily know about them um, at that point. So those were the sorts of problems uh, that emerged.
0: Okay. So what what are the, the duties of, um, I mean, we've, we've talked a little bit before about director's duties, you know, director's duties being to act in the, in the interest of the company, not to incur obligation, unreasonably incur obligations that can't be met, um, these sorts of, Duties, but what are what are the duties for liquidators? Because they take over the, they stand in the shoes of the directors. They they become the the guiding hand.
1: Well, in most cases, uh, once the liquidator is appointed, you you assume that the business is just going to get sold off, uh, and it's not going to trade on. So that's the starting point. Otherwise, you might be looking at a compromise or a uh, under the Companies Act administration. So. Just focus on those sorts of cases for the moment where the company's clearly going to get um, dismembered, sold off. Um, I think the uh, the first function of the, of the liquidator um, is to get in all the assets. So that, there's two steps in that. One is actually identifying the assets, and the second is then realizing the assets. And the third phase is actually distributing the assets. Okay. So there are three different phases, and the the first phase of identification. Um, you're going to have voluntary disclosure by the directors. You may need, some circumstances, to use the examination powers and get other information to see if other assets
0: exist. Now, those examination powers are actually quite uh, far-reaching. Yes, um, in fact, you know, some might even say uh, to the point that if possibly got um, uh, more power than a than, than police officer may necessarily have. Yeah,
1: yep. there's an element of that. And I mean, if um, when I first started practising in this area, um, under the 1955 Act, any examination uh, had to be before. You couldn't do it in front of a liquidator. So that you had a judicial officer who was going to um, be able to regulate the Procedure, make sure it was done fairly, ensure that improper questions weren't answered and so forth. Uh, it became more difficult once the liquidators themselves could do it. The good liquidators usually have an experienced council assisting them, and that council really then has their own obligation to sort of make sure it's done properly. And, and um, not abused. Oh, not, not, yeah, not, not, not abused, yeah. And not abused, yeah. You know there have been cases where there have been borderline, um, there have been genuine arguments, so it's not abuse, but for example, is a liquidator entitled to get someone on oath to and produce and, and answer the question are you was the are you insured?" Yeah. you're looking at sending a claim against them, and if so, who's your insurer? And can I have a copy of the insurance policy yeah. uh, because no other litigant gets that advantage um there are uh, there are arguments to say it should you know the whole process is designed to try and make recovery as simple as possible. if someone genuinely owns something, why not disclose and make sure you've got access to it
0: uh, and i guess it's it's quite a a, a large undertaking for a liquidator who uh, has been appointed and may know nothing about the company and the company may have been in existence for decades. Uh, And have quite complicated affairs. I I guess this segue, or this this sort of goes back into another director's duty, and that's the director's duty to keep business records and and have them available. But again, you know, my perception is you know the large number of companies in New Zealand, which are small companies, uh, one person uh, band type scenarios, and might have a few employees, actually keeping records um, may not necessarily have been uh, their strong point.
1: Most definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, one one of the biggest um, causes of problems, corporate problems, is in fact a tradesperson who's a really good tradesperson does Mm -hmm. their job well but can't keep records. Then the tax doesn't get paid and nobody calculates that right and so forth. Um, And that can be a real peril for the people involved. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think the. The records issue, was a provision again back in the 1955 Act that's inserted about being able to uh, pursue a director company's failing to keep proper accounting records. Uh, and the court's got a fairly broad jurisdiction in terms of um, being able to award uh, compensation for the losses that the creditors have suffered. The rationale for that is that if you've failed to uh, keep records and nobody can prove whether you were responsible uh, for causing the debt. Mm. So basically it's uh, an opportunity to um, have uh, a case brought in inappropriate circumstances where uh, the evidence just isn't available to tell you uh, what actually happened
0: yeah look absolutely now um so one of the central points which you you have rightly made is that the liquidator's duty one of the liquidator's duties is to it's is to find the assets um and then uh to to start distributing them um but what what if um you know prior to the company uh failing going into liquidation that in the months leading up to it, the directors had been busy off paying, you know, their mates or themselves. Um, what powers do, do liquidators have to deal with that situation?
1: They have the voidable transaction provisions. Um, there are a number of different types. There's straightforward voidable transaction, which just involves someone who is paying off a creditor at a time of insolvency. Um, you have a charge that might have been given in favour of a bank or somebody um, at a time of insolvency, so they end up potentially with a higher priority than what they would have had. Um, so there are different types of um, of preference. The, the key thing here is that, again, like director's duties, there's a, a real tension trying to uh, formulate how to do this tensions between uh, ensuring um, a proportionate distribution of money among creditors, on the one hand, uh, and, uh, again, not competing against trading companies, usually small ones, uh, that have no reason to believe that the companies in trouble uh, and are then being pursued to return the money they thought they were properly entitled to. Now, the theory... Um, benefit of some of your listeners who may not know this is that um, when a company is in a position to pay, there are a series of priorities. And some uh, priority creditors might be PAYE, GST, things like that, uh, employment in arrears, redundancy up to certain amounts. Then you have the unsecured creditors against uh, whom the money is being paid. So let's assume for the moment the prior creditors have been paid. So you're then looking at distributing. Now let's say you've got a couple of creditors who've been paid off, say $100,000. What happens if they are required to pay back is that that goes into the pool, but the creditor is still entitled to participate in that pool in the same proportions as all the other creditors. So the whole idea is to um, swell the insolvency fund so that everybody gets the proportionate share they should have got in the first place, but there's a there's a real tension in getting the legislation right. And in my professional lifetime, I think there have been at least three or four goes at it in New Zealand, none of which I think have really got it completely right.
0: Mm. It, look, it's it's certainly been an area which uh, insolvency um, practitioners, as lawyers, um, have. Um, Certainly received a lot of work is dealing with the uh, the, the voidable preferences regime and, and the courts have, have had to somehow uh, create a, a set of rules um, that can be followed. People can understand that you know when money has been paid out, um, when that could be clawed back and scenario how that all sits. And our Supreme Court's given us a, a, some guidance as well. Um, now, just with uh, going back to um, the, the, again, Company directors who are trying to see their way through, um, and hopefully matters not falling over. What's not an uncommon scenario is where they go, Well, we're actually owed money. Um, and if we can get that money in, then that'll resolve our insolvency scenario. Um, one area uh, or one industry or part of our economy where that became to the forefront, uh, we won't get into a lot of detail, and, and this is. Is in construction and and hence the Construction Contracts Act has a very unique payment regime. It's unique to only that only one part of the economy which is which is construction. Where um, for listeners, um, if a builder, for example, does the work, uh, they issue um, their, their principal, the person who's contracted with them, a payment claim um, to which there's a timing for the, for the person receiving the payment claim to put in. A uh, payment schedule where they they say yes we're going to pay this or we're disputing this part, and, and provided that that uh, process is is followed, um, uh, it enables um, creditor being the construction uh, company to, um, to 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 proceed to recover a debt without having to prove that it's dis- disputed or you know that it's undisputed. Um, That aspect um, seems to work well in New Zealand and and particularly features highly in in, in insolvency matters. Do you you think that that's a a success story in in terms of helping keep cash flowing in in one part of the economy?
1: There's actually something developed when I was at Don Dugdale was the um, person who really drove that. And again, by way of background, there was something... Uh, again, when I started, wages protection and lien act, whereby a subcontractor who hadn't paid a lien on the title of the property and ensured that they'd be paid out of that, that was sub- that was actually repealed, uh, and the sub-contractors were left with no um, no remedy. So the the construction contract contracts act was, was intended to provide that degree of protection. And that's why it was limited to construction contracts at that time. Um, I think from what I've seen, uh, it works well. The danger though, is in really big projects, um, which it was never really specifically designed to deal with. Where you might have an adjudication of millions of dollars, which immediately actually brings the whole thing to a halt. And uh, I, I think some further review of that might be helpful um, because certainly uh, when that legislation was being formulated, that sort of issue wasn't, wasn't clear in our minds. Uh, I'm sure we, we had some information about the possibilities, but the likelihood was probably not as, as high as it has been over the last few years.
0: Yeah. Let's move into sort of the the last topic for the podcast. Uh, I know we've touched earlier on um, about cross border insolvency, but I just want to uh, dive a little bit deeper in, into that. Um, uh, in one of the cases that you adjudicated on uh, in the High Court, uh, Williams and Simpson Number Five, <laughs> you, um, you, you you made the comment that um, you know there, there, there was there, there has to be compelling reasons why a universalist approach should not be implied. Uh, when you've got cross-border insolvency. So this is uh, where there was a, an application for relief um, brought under Section 8 um, of our cross, uh, Solvency Cross-Border Act. Um, and that is one of the, the two mechanisms, and I'll, I'll get you to to talk about the, the, the neutral um, model law on cross-border insolvency as well, But can I just go back to your your point you were making that there has to be compelling reasons why a universalist approach should not be applied. Why is that?
1: It comes back to this um, proposition
0: I was putting up earlier about
1: the need uh, for entities in different countries to have a level playing field when they're dealing with each other and for the creditors in both countries to have a clear idea of how things might be solved. Hence, to depart from that, you should have some compelling reason. The uh, If I can deal with the UNSITRA model now, because it's, actually yep. it's, uh, it fits quite nicely with the point you're making. The the UNSITRA model law has four pillars. First is access, which means that someone from overseas who is a insolvency administrator of a company, is entitled to come to the New Zealand court to seek relief. Um, The second is recognition. That process involves the court in New Zealand recognising that proceeding as either a foreign main or a foreign non-main proceeding. A foreign main proceeding means that the company as it's what they call the centre of main interests uh, in the country from which the liquidation request has been made. That's the Americans sort of have the phrase um, the nerve centre to represent, you know, the sort of thing you're trying to capture in centre of main interest. The other part is that you can have an enterprise which essentially is a a, a non-transitory activity involving human or goods. And now, the problem in Williams was that uh, Dr. Simpson was a retired um, a doctor, a psychiatrist, I think, or something like that, from, from uh, New Zealand who'd lived in London. He'd got himself into trouble with Boyds and owed them money, and that was the whole reason for the, the application. He'd been made bankrupt in England. But as a retired physician, he didn't qualify as a trading company. Is um, uh, he'd been asked to? The English court was asking for assistance, but in fact he was domiciled in New Zealand, so and he wasn't carrying on business in any way. Um, so that the problem rose that neither of those two limbs, which would normally apply, work. So section eight was always designed. Uh, to be the fallback, so that if uh, something fell through the cracks, then there was uh, the ability to go to the court and ask for relief of the same type that you might get under the Model Law. Uh, and Section 8 appears in the Insolvency Cross-Border Act, and the Model Law is Schedule 1 uh, to that. Um, so so that's the that's the background to what was happening there. Um, the the aim there was to basically get the money that was in New Zealand. He had a whole lot of gold bars and silver bars stored away uh, somewhere.
0: It was in the floor of his house. Yeah, it was in the floor <laughs> of his
1: house. There's some interesting stories yeah. around that, which I can go into if you want to. But um, the uh, you know that that just got the money back, <clears throat> but. The compelling reason issues, uh, there, is a, there is an example of why that might have been important in that case. The Commissioner of Inland Revenue was making a claim uh, and uh, the it was a default claim, so we didn't really know how much it really was at that point. Um, it was argued initially but incorrectly that English law recognised the New Zealand revenue debt. Um, but that ended up being incorrect. But let's say it had refused to do it. That could have meant uh, that if monies had been repatriated to the uh trustee in England, that the New Zealand revenue would have been paid.
0: That'd miss out.
1: Miss yeah, out. Yep. So um using an example from Australia, um the uh, the court in Australia in a case involving Cayman Islands had the same problem. And what the judge did in that case was to say, right, I'm going to work out what notional did, assuming our tax debt is payable. Going to then release notional share to the tax department. I'll give you the rest of the money back, and you can divide that among the creditors. And and that was a very neat solution, and was actually the solution I had in mind in that case. Had it not later been recognised that there wasn't a problem in England, and also the, as sometimes happens, the default assessment proved to be wildly inaccurate and relatively small. Um, so that that that's the sort of issue that. Was.
0: So um, I mean, in essence, what what I'm understanding you to to say, Paul, is is that this is New Zealand's commitment to uh, so that the the, the committee uh, to provide a, re- a reciprocal arrangement maybe in the hope that uh, if we help uh, overseas companies out from, from, a, from, a, from a different foreign jurisdiction, that foreign jurisdiction will help our companies out uh, in, in a, a like-for-like scenario. Yeah.
1: Reciprocity is not a key. Under some of the countries that have adopted the model, they have actually added reciprocity. I think South Africa is one. Um, but the fact that another country doesn't have reciprocity is not a reason of itself to the relief. Um, if you're dealing with countries that do have it, and again, most of the, the major players like Australia, the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, um, have the ability to use that, um, and the United States um, has it with a very different solvency process. But they're all very similar rules. I think there are now something like about 60 or 70 countries that have adopted. So you're starting to get a, a good
0: critical mass critical mass
1: of yeah. Yeah. Uh, countries. And, you know, if, if someone's trading overseas, that is something they should be getting advice on. You know, does this buy, if not. You know, what has to be done if there's a problem?
0: Well, you know, like particularly I mean, New Zealand is is so uh, I mean, exporting is, is, a, is such a key area for our economy, and uh, the use of cre- providing credit to uh, to overseas companies and for- foreign jurisdictions. Um, you, you're absolutely right. You you need to know uh, as a potential creditor what's your risk profile looking like. Is this a country that you can um, rely on? will um, properly have some form of uh, insolvency regime that uh, will return something to you if there's something to be returned. I started this afternoon's discussion with a quote and I thought it'd be quite fitting to finish with one. This is from author Erica Hall, who said that a large corporation is more like Australia. It's impossible to see the whole landscape at once and there are so many things capable of maiming or killing you. Well, a little bit of legal fiction to think about as we move to close out this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. I want to thank my guest, the Honourable Paul Heath, Queen's Counsel, Arbitrator and Mediator. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a pleasure having you join me on the podcast today.
1: My my pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at paterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application, and the future of the law here down under.